Hi and Silver and Gut Check Media presents The Pilgrim's Progress From this world to that which is to come John Bunyan's timeless Christian allegory As told by Zachary Bartles Chapter 19 Vignettes Part 2 Letters from the Road Christiana returned from the market to find another letter snugged between door and frame, tied with a blue ribbon. This particular shade of pale blue was her favorite color, something which Christian had used to undiminishing returns during their courtship, as each note of love, each sonnet and song he wrote for her was carefully tied with just this color of ribbon, possibly from the very same spool as the piece she now untied. Before opening the folded page, however, she unloaded the produce she'd just bought onto the board in her kitchen and washed each piece. She'd been prepared to go and fill the basin with clean water, but that had already been done. This was not the first time that a kind and helpful act had seemed to mysteriously carry itself out lately. Broken items were mended, dishes washed, firewood chopped and stacked. Christiana had at first assumed that this was the doing of her eldest, Matthew, who was very keen to take on adult roles of late, but he had denied it. Then the letters began to arrive, and she had put the two together. While he was on a journey of his own, on his own, Christian yet provided for them in every way, and far more attentively than he had before he'd left. It was an intriguing mystery to Christiana, and, if she was honest with herself, it had begun to break down the barriers she'd erected between herself and the idea of pilgrimage. When she had finished preparing the produce and had mentally rehearsed the ingredients needed for tonight's dinner, confirming they were all in place, she retired to the parlor, where she sat and opened the letter. My dearest Christiana, it read, Greetings from the Pilgrim Road. All is well at present. Although we recently faced great trials, my king has seen me through, and my new companion, Hopeful, has proved a true friend. Still, I miss you greatly. You are on my mind every day, every hour. In fact, it would not be much of an exaggeration to say that there is never a time when you are not in my thoughts. If not always in the center of them, you are never far off. I thank God every day for you and for our lovely boys who are growing into good and reliable men. My one prayer, though, for all of you, is that you would join me on the narrow road. I would love to share this journey with you. In fact, I want nothing more than to see you making progress, as I am, along the narrow way. Indeed, I myself would stay behind in destruction and perish in the flames if it meant you and our boys traveling the road to the Celestial City. Please consider this an invitation to walk beside me once again. We've been through a lot during our lives together, but this last journey would be more meaningful and more rewarding than all that came before it. Grace and peace to you. All my love, Christian. She set the letter on a low table and dabbed her eyes with a handkerchief, reminding herself to hide the letter away before the children could see it. The simple page would join a dozen others in a keepsake box beside her bed, and the small piece of ribbon she would tie into her hair with all the others, a way of keeping her husband close without raising difficult questions from her neighbors. With each new letter, Christiana felt herself drawn that much more to the wicket gate her husband spoke of so fondly, 
And yet, even as she felt the mysterious pull of that place and the promises Christian had conveyed, there was something holding her back, like a chain which could not be broken even if the pull she now felt were increased a hundredfold. Tears began to flow more freely, an odd intermingling of gratitude, longing, and frustration. The sound of her sons, James and Samuel, laughing as they ran past the house, snatched her back from the sorrow she felt. She dried her eyes and walled off the pain. Looking down at the letter, she could see it now as the very culprit of her tears. She marched into the bedroom and stuffed the page into the box, which she kicked lightly, sending it skidding deeper beneath the bed. Glancing up, she caught her reflection in their looking glass. She looked tired and spent, and she reminded herself that this was Christian's fault. He had left her in this impossible position. The pool of tenderness which had been forming in her bosom hardened. No, she thought, I did not marry a pilgrim, and I never agreed to leave everything I've ever known and loved behind to follow him on a fool's errand. She caught her own eye in the glass and felt as though she looked away first, heading off to the kitchen to get an early start on dinner, something to occupy her thoughts. As she walked, she was oblivious to the two ill-favored ones flanking her, moving deftly with her, petting her head, hardening her heart, whispering poison into her soul. Back to Hell The pilgrim contrite passed beneath the arch at the entrance of Vanity Fair and found his senses immediately assaulted by the goings-on. We have harlots of all kinds, buxom... Rows and rows of crass commerce as far as the eye could see amidst fighting, drinking, and cavorting. Contrite put his head down and pushed forward, intent on passing through this place as quickly as possible. Within ten steps, he bumped into a burly fairgoer who shoved him hard, sending him tripping to the muddy ground. All around, people pointed and laughed at his predicament. The pilgrim was so stunned at this turn of events that he lay there on the ground for a full minute before finding himself lifted to his feet by a portly man in a long, hooded robe. Are you all right? the man asked. Oh, yes, and thank you for your concern. It seems to be in short supply here. It is indeed, although the citizens of this place will tell you that empathy and concern are among their chief products. Perhaps I can help you navigate the fair today, the man said. It seems as though you could use it. My name is Compromise. Contrite, the pilgrim said, gripping the man's hand. And I am thankful for your help. Contrite and Compromise, the man sang, leading the newcomer toward the north end of the fair. It has a nice ring to it. Best slaves you'll find in Vanity Fair, let me tell you. Sir, why are we going this way? I, I really just want to pass through here and continue on toward the shining light. The, the quicker the better, in my book. Trust me, Pilgrim. This may not be the most direct route through, but it is the wisest and safest. As they walked, it became clear to the Pilgrim that he was the object of much ridicule among those buying and selling alike. They pointed at his embroidered coat, laughing, scoffing, even threatening him. Why is it, Contrite asked, that my clothing is met with nothing but derision, and yet your odd garment seems to pass unnoticed? Are you some sort of wizard or mystic? Compromise laughed. (laughs) 
No, no, nothing as interesting as that. It's just that I've been here in the fair so long that everyone's used to me. Stay close and no one will dare harass you. Ah, yes, here we are. They had reached the entrance to an enormous tent, the flap of which Compromise pulled back, gesturing for the pilgrim to enter. Contrite peered in and took a staggering step back at the sight of the shameless wickedness on full display within. No, he said, I will not go in there. The hooded man grabbed Contrite around the wrist hard enough to stop the blood. I know your reservations, Pilgrim, but trust me, he said, it's for the best. You'll be out of here before you know it and on your way to your city. He pulled unyieldingly, slowly drawing Contrite in, the Pilgrim's feet sliding through the muck. No! Contrite cried. Release me! A wave of laughter and mockery from within the tent, as well as those around it, was the only response. Then a man came charging up from behind the tent flap and struck Compromise with a savage blow, blasting him down into the mud. The man placed himself between Contrite and Compromise. He wore boots up to his knees, a pack on his back, and a hat with a brim so wide it drooped a bit on the sides. Have a care, good pilgrim, the man said, pointing at the prone figure before them. This is no fellow sojourner. This is one of Beelzebub's agents. Look at what he conceals beneath his robe. Contrite saw that the man's legs, or rather the creature's legs, were furry and behooved like those of a goat. Compromise cursed his attacker and made to rise, but the man in the wide hat stepped quickly to him, pulling the hood roughly from the creature's head and revealing two curling horns. Then, pulling a dagger from a sheath on his belt, he yanked back on one of those horns and pushed the blade up to Compromise's exposed throat. Now, will you make yourself scarce, or shall I make you extinct? Compromise swallowed hard and said, I, I yield, let me be. The man sheathed the dagger, grabbed Contrite by the arm, and began walking him quickly back toward the maypole at the center of the fair. I shouldn't have done that, he said, looking furtively around. That man has many friends in the fair, and he has eyes everywhere. In fact, this whole town belongs to Beelzebub, who is, effectively, its god. We should make good our escape as quickly as possible. They weaved their way deftly through the crowds and were seemingly on their way out of the cursed place when they came upon a frothing mob that filled the lane and blocked their path. Oh, what now? Contrite's new companion muttered. The two of them pushed their way into the crowd until they saw the subjects of the unrest. Two men, one of them in armor and both of them smeared in filth, being mocked and reviled, pelted with rocks and rotten fruit, and beaten, while a massive guard kept watch, smirking all the while. We have to stop this, Contrite said. These, these men are, are pilgrims as we are. Looking to his left, he saw a man in cossack and gown, and said to him, Are you not a, a minister, sir? Put a stop to this. The man just raised his hands and backed away, his face pale. That's enough, someone called from deeper in the crowd. Yeah, you made your point, another cried out. If these men have broken a law, let's try them properly. Contrite opened his mouth to add his own objection, but felt his new companion squeeze his arm. Let's see how this plays out, he whispered. A grievance has been lodged. There's no use in you bearing the consequences without furthering the cause of these poor men. Show of hands, the guard bellowed. Who thinks these men have endured enough abuse? 
Contrite made to raise his hand, but his guide held it down. It's a trap, he whispered. Just wait. This advice was seemingly confirmed when the guard ordered everyone with a raised hand to be gathered up and placed in the stocks. He then commanded the crowd to disperse and dragged the two pilgrims away. As they set their faces toward the shining sun at the outer limits of the fair, Contrite said to his new companion, I feel eyes on us. As do I. Hand on his dagger, the man glanced about. The last thing we need is to be snatched up at the border or followed into open country. Let us remove all suspicion by purchasing something innocuous. He led Contrite up to a vendor's booth covered in woodcuts, which he perused briefly before purchasing two of them. He held both out to Contrite and invited him to choose. One print depicted a rather silly-looking goat in a pen, and the other a man lying pleasantly beneath a tree. Contrite took the latter, rolled it up, and placed it in his satchel. Well, now you'll have a token of your time in Vanity Fair, said the other man, folding his own print and sliding it beneath the strap of his pack. It will serve as a reminder of how our great king saw us through, hmm? They resumed their travel, and within a quarter hour they had left the fair behind. I have a proposition for you, the man said. I have business down this road a stretch. Perhaps we could travel together for a time. That would be most welcome. My name is Contrite, and you are? Mr. Toehold. That is certainly an unusual name. I, I assume there's a story there? Oh, yes. My mother, a very pious woman, named me in the biblical fashion, if you can believe it. She gave birth to twins, myself and my brother, fraternal, not identical. We were born much like Jacob and his twin brother Esau, him grabbing at my foot as we emerged. Of course, with the patriarch and his brother, it was the heel, and with us, it was my toe. And so she called me toehold rather than heel grabber, contrite laughed. <laughs> I suppose you find yourself telling that story quite frequently. Indeed, I do. Can I ask you something, Toehold? What is on your back? Surely you haven't made it this far without losing your burden. Of course not. These are supplies for the journey. I prefer to sleep in as much comfort as possible, even while traveling. I carry with me a good-sized tent, big enough to protect us both from the elements, some cooking supplies, and other things needed along the way, although I must admit I do grow rather weary of carrying it. He flashed a grin at Contrite and said, I have a second proposition. If you relieve me of my load for the next couple of days and pitch the tent for us, I will do all the cooking. And believe me when I tell you I am quite skilled at preparing a good meal. Is that agreeable? I can hardly say no after you saved me from that monster back there. But all debts aside, it, it does sound like a fair arrangement. They paused on the narrow way to transfer the pack onto Contrite's shoulders. As they resumed, Mr. Toehold said, No, I have a question for you. Why were you alone back there? Yeah, I, I had been traveling with a, a small band of pilgrims, but some weeks ago, they stopped to rest and I continued on. When I realized my mistake, I retraced my steps, but never could find them again. How about you, Mr. Toehold? Why are you alone? I was on pilgrimage with my brother. Your twin brother, Toehold smiled. Yes, although I am the handsome one. <laughs> Some time ago, he decided to go a, a different way. Sadness stole over his face. Well, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear it. 
Ah, thank you, my friend. And I do have hope that I will see him again. Perhaps even soon. As they walked, both men recounted their experiences along the way, their trials and triumphs alike. The conversation was good, and it was a comfort to Contrite that he was no longer walking alone. And yet, the weight of the pack on his back continually called to mind the weight of his former burden in a way that he could not quite understand, and he suggested, before the sun had even begun to set, that they stop and make camp for the day. Per their agreement, Contrite set about pitching the tent, after which he gathered some wood for the fire and stones to contain it. Then, Toehold, his oddly named new companion, made good on his promise, preparing a delicious, exotic-tasting stew which he proudly presented to his fellow traveler. Looking down at the contents of the bowl, Contrite chuckled. <laughs> Red stew? <laughs> Another reminder of your biblical namesake, who sold his birthright for a bowl of the same. He had another spoonful and added, There's a, a taste here I can't quite identify. Some spice from foreign lands? That would be the secret ingredient, the legacy of my dear brother, if you will. It's his recipe. As the sun was setting, they made their beds, contrites in the tent, and toeholds next to the pleasant fire. I'm a very light sleeper, he explained. The least snap of a twig rouses me to, to full diligence. Unless you would rather establish a watch schedule, I suggest I spend the night out here and we both get a full night's sleep. That works out well, I suppose, as I am an incredibly deep sleeper. But uh, let me know if you do want me to take a watch. I'd be happy to. And with that, he crawled into the tent and fell asleep, exhausted from a day of trouble and travel. When he awoke... Contrite's arms and legs felt tingly, and his eyesight was a bit blurred. He exited the tent and stood, hoping it might help to get the blood flowing, but no sooner was he upright than he found himself doubling over, feeling as though he might vomit. Toehold, he called. I, oh, I fear I'm, I'm, I may have eaten something turned or, or toxic yesterday. The man rushed to his side and helped him sit. That's odd, his companion said. I feel fine. What did you have for, for breakfast? The only thing I ate the whole day was your stew. Well, that can't be it. I ate the same thing and I feel fine. Perhaps you encountered some unlawful spice or narcotic in the fair. Or it could be that the, the vile beast compromise dosed you with something dark and mind-altering. He's been known to do that. I'm sure it will pass with time. Can you stand, do you think? Yeah, just give me a minute. All right, but when you can, let's get moving. It will do you good to breathe the fresh country air. I'll even carry the pack for you. Their progress was slow that day, further encumbered by the terrain growing stark and rough underfoot. By early afternoon, Contrite could go no further, and all but collapsed onto a bed of moss, imploring of Toehold, can we... Please just camp here tonight. I'm, I'm sure I'll feel better in the morning when this has left my system. Toehold regarded him with concern and said, Yes, of course. You rest. I'll pitch the tent. Contrite faded in and out of consciousness for a while until the sound of the mallet striking the tent pegs snatched him from his fever dreams. The dull sound came again and again, continuing for several minutes, each blow feeling as though it would split his skull open. 
Finally, he rolled to his knees and crawled over to where Toehold was still on the second of four pegs. He kept hitting them at a glancing angle. Any progress he made in driving the stake in with one blow was knocked loose with the very next swing of the mallet. Here, Contrite said, taking the tool in his sweaty hands. I'll, I'll do it. See, you've got to hit the head of the stake head on and swing like you're, you're trying to crush the thing. Like, like this. It took him only a few minutes to finish staking the tent, but he was completely depleted when it was done. He again curled up on the moss and faded from consciousness. The sky was orange when Toehold shook him awake and offered him more of the red stew. I'm sorry, he said. This is all I have. I hope you're not tired of it. Not, not at all, Contrite managed to say, but he had a hard time muscling it down as the taste of the mystery spice was now even more overpowering than it had been the night before. He fell asleep beside the fire and woke up beneath the stars, a blanket having been lain over him. He looked all around, but could not find Toehold anywhere. The man's bedroll was there, just across the fire from him, and his boots as well, but the man himself was nowhere to be seen. Perhaps he's gone into the woods to relieve himself, he thought, then realized that no man goes off into the forest, in the dark, barefoot. Mr. Toehold! he called out into the night. Are you there? His head pounded in response to his own voice. Yes, I'm here, came the reply from out of the darkness. All is well. I'll be back in a moment. Go back to sleep. Contrite closed his eyes and drifted off. When he awakened, it was morning, and he felt even sorer and more disconnected from his extremities. His neck was stiff, his body sluggish. He was unable to help pack up camp, and in order for the two men to make any progress, Toehold had to both carry the pack and allow Contrite to lean against him for balance and support as they traveled. They stopped several times throughout the day and made camp even earlier than the night before. Contrite apologized profusely, but Toehold would have none of it. How about I don't pitch the tent tonight, he said. I know how the sound of the mallet hurt your head last time. Let's both sleep by the warmth of the fire again. It will do you some good. Contrite thanked him, slumping onto his blanket. He dozed off and on through the early evening and awakened to the now familiar smell of the red stew. With great difficulty, Contrite sat up and accepted the bowl, the smell of the stuff turning his stomach. Toehold noticed this reaction and said, You know, I'm growing tired of this dish myself. I think we need a change tomorrow. I suggest we take the day off from travel. You're not feeling up to it. Today's progress is proof of that. Oh, I, I do apologize, Contrite said. But you're right. I am so slow and so stiff and dizzy that I would only hold you back. Then let's remain here for a day. You can rest and recover, and I'll set some snares to trap some hares. How does that sound for dinner tomorrow? Sounds good. Contrite looked down at the stew in his bowl and knew he could not eat it. But not wanting to hurt his friend's feelings, he pointed out into the darkness and said, What is that? Toehold craned his neck. What? Where? Contrite sloshed the pungent stuff off into the brush, realizing as he did it that its smell might attract a predator during the night. I, I could swear I, I saw something. A bear or, or a lion? A, a beast of, of some kind. I'll have a look. 
Toehold drew his dagger and disappeared into the darkness. Contrite clambered over to where the stew was seeping into the ground and turned the earth over with his spoon, frantically trying to bury it. He heard his companion returning and crawled back to his bed. I saw nothing, Toehold said, shrugging. It may have been my fever, I suppose. Oh, sorry. I don't know what's come over me. Contrite mimed eating a few bites before setting the bowl down by the fire. Get some sleep, my friend, Toehold said. Then, as he had the night before, he pulled the floppy brim of his hat down over his eyes and almost immediately began to snore. Contrite also drifted off and again awakened in the dead of night, the glow of coals and the nearly full moon overhead, the only sources of light. He could feel some vitality returning to his body. He sat up and noticed immediately that Mr. Toehold was gone once again. Only his boots remained, sitting next to his pillow. Hunched and hurried, Contrite made his way over to his companion's bed, head still pounding. He felt a shock of fear and horror as he looked down into the tall boots. They were lined with silk, tapering gradually down, almost to a point. Contrite thought of the cloven hooves of the creature compromise. Then he heard a rustling from out in the darkness and the sound of whispered conversation. Stepping as lightly as he could, Contrite made his way to the edge of the wood and peered down into a shallow ravine where he saw the silhouette of his traveling companion. It was too dark for him to see the man's feet, and his broad hat obscured the view of whoever he was conversing with. Contrite could not make out their words, but he could sense from the tone that they were nearing the end of their conversation. The pilgrim slunk back to his bed and feigned sleep, just as Compromise came creeping back into camp and crawled into his own bed, again pulling his hat down over his eyes. Contrite did not think he would fall asleep that night, but the next thing he knew, the sun was beating down on him, closer to the top of the sky than it was to the eastern horizon. Toehold was gone again, having left a note that he was off setting traps to catch their dinner. Grasping the opportunity, Contrite opened the man's pack and rifled through it. At first, he found nothing of note, just supplies for the road, but then, in a hidden compartment, two pages folded over each other. The first was the woodcut from Vanity Fair, the image of a goat now looking evil and foreboding. The other was a schedule of sorts. Day one, it read, a pinch. Day two, a level teaspoon. Day three, a rounded teaspoon. Day four, one gill. Day five, the remainder. He slid the pages back into the compartment. Then, remembering his own woodcut, he pulled it out from his satchel. A sense of dread rose up in his entrails. The picture of the man resting beneath the tree was now of a dead man. His head, a yawning skull, a crow perched atop it. No, he thought, I will not die a victim of this creature's cunning. Toehold returned an hour later to find his companion in bed breathing raggedly, wide eyes jerking from one invisible horror to another. He smiled and set about preparing two rabbits on the fire. The smell of the meat brought an audible growl from Contrite's stomach, and he feigned waking just as the dish was ready. Having not eaten in two days, even the thick red coating could not dissuade the pilgrim from having some of the meat. 
Doing his best to continue the charade of ever-increasing illness, Contrite pulled away the rabbit's skin and cut a portion from the center of the animal with shaking hands. But even the deepest meat was saturated with the earthy spice, and he spit it surreptitiously into his hand. Oh, I don't feel well, Contrite said, and collapsed back onto his bed. Toehold seemed hardly able to mask his happiness at this turn, eating his own dinner down to the bones and cleaning up the dishes with a barely contained sense of glee. As night fell, he approached Contrite with a thick cup of hot liquid. It's a medicinal tea, he said, to grant you healing sleep. Contrite took one sip and recoiled at the familiar taste of the red spice. He made a show of fighting against the heaviness of his eyelids for a few seconds before letting the cup slip from his hand, its contents spilling into the earth. Toehold laughed darkly. Through interlaced eyelashes, the pilgrim watched him remove his boots, set them side by side next to his pillow, and begin to dance both in and around the fire. The pilgrim, he will soon be dead. Compromise walked upon his cloven hooves, his heavy robe dragging leaves and needles along behind him. He came to a stop and drew back his hood, revealing his horns. This was the meeting place, as it had been the night before. The darkness all around did nothing to quash his exuberant spirit. According to the last update, they were on the very precipice of taking another pilgrim. He smiled at the sight of the floppy-brimmed hat coming down into the ravine in the moonlight, but the smile quickly faded. Something was off. As the man drew closer, he also drew his dagger. He then removed his hat, which he threw aside. Were you perhaps expecting someone else? The pilgrim asked. No horns upon my head, nor hooves upon my feet. He kept the dagger pointed directly at the heart of compromise. So this is what you do, Contrite spat. Two sides of the same coin. If you cannot drag a pilgrim into that den of iniquity, your brother will get a toehold and inch him along to the same effect. Compromise grinned. You are far from the first, he said, nor will you be the last. I wouldn't count on that, Contrite said. I found your secret ingredient in the toe of your brother's boot, or what would be the toe if he had any for you to grab, a whole bundle of that wicked red spice. Compromise shrugged. So you found it. What of it? You're still in the dark, in the wilderness, outnumbered two to one. No one will hear your screams. Two to one. Are you sure? Compromise felt his innards pull taut. What does that mean? He asked. The pilgrim sneered. What do you think it means? Compromise drew back, pulled a pouch of corrosive powder from the folds of his robe, and ejected it into the pilgrim's face, sending him spinning and coughing. He then knocked him to the ground and rushed up the slope to the campsite. There, he saw his brother lying unnaturally upon his back in the dancing orange light of the fire, furry legs akimbo, his vacant eyes staring up into the sky. He cried out in despair. (laughs) Drawing closer, he saw Toehold's mouth gaping wide and the encrusted red powder caked upon his cheeks. Oh, my brother! 
No! The light and heat of the fire were suddenly blocked by the pilgrim's presence behind him. Oh, how, how much did you give him? Compromise sobbed. All of it. No more half measures. No more glancing blows. Compromise looked back to see the pilgrim holding the mallet high above his head. And now, loathsome creature compromise, the pilgrim contrite said, back to hell with you. Mr. and Mrs. Timorous at home. Mercy shifted the dish of baked apples onto her hip and knocked gently on the front door of the small house. A moment later, it opened just a few inches and a man peered out. He studied her warily for half a minute before craning his neck to peer around her diminutive form as though there may be untold dangers lurking there. Hello, Mr. Timorous, Mercy said pleasantly. It's me, just me. I've brought dessert, like we discussed. She stood there awkwardly while the man hung in the doorway, seemingly undecided as to how he should proceed. Is, uh, is Mrs. Timorous home? She finally asked. Sweetie! He called back into an unseen room. Mercy's here! Well, invite her in, you silly goose! Came the barked response. The man frowned at the young woman for a moment and then opened the door wide and gestured for her to enter. Welcome. Please come in. Mercy entered the familiar house and placed her dish on the table. How are you today, Mr. Timorous? She asked. He narrowed his eyes. Why you ask? No reason, just making conversation. I assume you are coming with us this evening? Normally with a widow, just we women would bring some food, of course, but since it was Mrs. Endearing who died, we thought it would be improper for us to... Mrs. Timorous blustered into the room, apron covered in flour and meat drippings, wielding a large wooden spoon. She gave Mercy a brief kiss and chided her husband for his lack of manners. Looks like you've been cooking up a storm, Mercy said. Shall we go? Mrs. Timorous met her husband's gaze for a moment and said... Oh, I'm not sure. You know how we hate to travel at night. At night? Why, it can't be later than, than four o'clock. Oh, but Mr. Endearing will invite us in, and he'll talk with us at length. And I, I never know what to say in those situations. By the time we leave, the sun will have set, and then we'll have to return under the cover of darkness. Who knows what scoundrels might be lurking in the shadows? But... Mrs. Timorous, we volunteered to bring some food and some cheer to that poor man today. Mercy gestured at her dish, growing cold on the table. I made my best dessert, and, and you've certainly been working hard in the kitchen, I can see that. What a shame it would be if we failed to deliver it. Come now, I promise, there's nothing to fear. You can't promise that. No, but you promised that this wouldn't happen again, didn't you? Mrs. Timorous wrapped the spoon against the table. Oh, it's so very easy for you, isn't it? She spat. You spend your days roaming and playing with those children and, and gabbing and gossiping with their mother, carefree as can be. Meanwhile, we are reminded of the dangers that lurk in every corner each time my poor husband opens his mouth. Okay, Mrs. Timorous, I, I know you don't like Christiana or her husband, but- Do not speak of that man in my house! I'm sorry, it's just that I need- It's all his fault! 
How is it his... Oh, I've long suspected she drove him out on that so-called pilgrimage. Poor Mr. Timorous was simply looking out for him. And if that foolish man had just listened, all would be well. But no, he had to be a hero and push ahead. And do you know what happened to my dear Mr. Timorous? Yes, he was burned He was burned through the tongue with a hot iron. And not just me, Mr. Timorous said. My friend mistrusteth well. Mrs. Timorous rubbed his back tenderly. <laughs> the king's men built a stage specifically to make an example of these good citizens. And, oh, now look, you've upset him. We certainly can't go out now. Mercy sighed. I'm sorry for what you've endured. Truly, I am. But you can't really think that such a thing would happen here in our town. It's certainly possible. Well, I mean, I'm sorry, is something humorous, amusing? <laughs> no, it's just, this is serious. I know, I know, it's serious, I'm sorry. Mercy glanced again at her dessert and said, Perhaps we could bring the food tomorrow morning when it's light out. Dear, you know we don't travel during the busy part of the day. Not since I was nearly trampled by a carriage six months ago. People are so preoccupied with their own business, they don't even see you. Why don't we just stay in? It just so happens I have enough dinner for all three of us, and we could eat your lovely dessert. Mrs. Timorous, it does not just so happen. You have extra food because you made some for that morning widower. I'd bring it to him myself, but that would be inappropriate. How about noontime tomorrow? Pish posh, tomorrow Mr. and Mrs. Lightmind will be bringing food to the widower, Mrs. Timorous said. We don't want to overwhelm the man. Besides, he'd probably rather be left alone, don't you think? Let's stay in tonight. We'll have dinner and play cards together. Sounds cozy, doesn't it? She opened the lid of Mercy's dish, fanning it so that the aroma filled the room. I suppose I could make another meal tomorrow, Mercy mused, and bring it to Mr. Endearing if the children were with me. Mr. Timorous's face lit up. Does that mean you'll stay? Mercy looked out the window and then back to the table, where she noticed three place settings already set. Yes, I'll stay. Splendid, Mr. Timorous said. Turnaway and the Town Apostasy Turnaway met the Lady Good Soil near the place of deliverance on the side nearest the Celestial City. He saw her walking with a lightness that belied her age, eyes fixed on the shining light in the distance, her gray hair bouncing with every step, and he came up alongside her, offering to accompany her. He had heard the tales, he said, of thieves and brigands attacking lone travelers, even along this road, and if he was quite honest, having lost his mother at a young age, he loved the idea of a spiritual mother to help guide and encourage him along the way. They walked together for many miles, stopping occasionally for good soil to rest and relating to each other details of their journeys so far, particularly what had transpired since passing through the wicket gate. At Good Soil's gentle prodding, Turnaway recounted the details of many mighty deeds he had done in the Lord's name, some of which sounded to her like miracles. I assume you received your name for the way you've turned from your sins, Good Soil said as they settled down to a simple lunch, but I'm thinking I'll call you by a nickname. Rapid Growth. 
I cannot believe how much you've grown in such a little time. The stories you tell, and I almost hesitate to say this out of fear of flattery, but I believe I've seen you grow in your faith even since we've been traveling together. Turn away blushed a bit, actually turning away. That's kind of you to say, but I don't know about that nickname. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. I think it'll stick. When they'd finished eating, they resumed the road, and their conversation shifted to how they might be of service to others, even as they made progress toward the city. I think we just need to keep our eyes open for people who might... Good soil came to a stop. Are you all right? She pointed off the path a ways, and there they were met with the oddest sight. Five people sleeping in the grass, their ankles shackled. Should we awaken them? Good Soil asked. Yes, if only to satisfy my curiosity about this. You there, wake up! It's the middle of the day, why are you sleeping? One by one they lifted their lolling heads to squint at the two pilgrims, confused and annoyed. Oh, what do you, what do you want? The man nearest them said. Why are you sleeping? Turnaway repeated. And why are your legs bound? Oh, again, with these same irksome questions. Leave us alone, pilgrims. Be gone. I think I can break those chains for you, Turnaway offered, picking up a particularly sharp rock and holding it up. Why don't you just mind your own business, another of them said, and do it, like, over there, way, way, way away from me. You, said Good Soil, pointing at the man furthest from them. He had been resting his head on the belly of a woman, her garment pulled up indecently around her thighs. You don't belong here. What's your name? I'm Dole, the woman answered. Why? No, I'm talking to you, sir, you in the pilgrim's coat. What is your name? My name, um, Linger, Linger After Lust. Really? The man sat up with some difficulty and rubbed the sleep from his eyes. Wait, no, no, no. His face twisted in thought. That's not my name anymore. He looked back down at the woman, who beckoned him to return to his slumber. Instead, he rose to his feet, unsteadily, trying to find his legs like a newborn calf. The two pilgrims rushed to his side and helped him up as he took a few tentative steps. My name is Godly Affections, the man said. And you are right, ma'am. I don't belong here. Well, let's get you on your way, Turnaway said. Oh, leave him be, one of the slumbering fools complained. He's one of us. No, I'm not, Godly Affections said. I forgot who I was for a long time. But I thank God for these pilgrims who cared enough to call me back to the road. He looked up to see a family of five practically running eastward and buried his face in his hands. Oh, it's right there, he cried. It's been 15 feet away this whole time. Good Soil pulled his hands down and gazed into his bloodshot eyes, saying, You've wasted some time, yes, but let's not waste a moment more here. Bending down, she held the chain connecting his legs taut against a boulder. With three well-aimed strikes, Turnaway broke the chain in two, and the three pilgrims began shuffling up the narrow way. Godly affections in the middle, his withered legs barely holding his weight, dragging the two halves of the broken chain behind him. 
As they walked, he recounted how he'd been charmed by the sounds and sights from beyond the wall and how his progress had slowed to almost nothing until he abandoned it altogether. He wept as he spoke, confessing his sin and asking the king to forgive him. Godly affections, look, Turnaway said. What, what? You're walking all on your own. And your legs. He looked down to see that not only had his atrophied muscles returned to their former strength, but the shackles and the chains had vanished. Praise the Lord! He shouted, running ahead and leaping for joy, before doubling back and matching Good Soil's pace. And oh my, what a gift! And oh my, now I must confess again uh, that I have been singularly focused on myself the entire time we've been walking together. I... I haven't even asked your names. No worries. I am Good Soil, and this is Turnaway, although I call him Rapid Growth. <laughs> rapid Growth? That's, that's not very catchy. Maybe not, but you should hear his stories, and I'm sure you will, but when we came upon you and your companions back there, we'd been discussing the future, not the past, namely how we might be of service to our fellow travelers along the way. Well, you've already made all the difference for one backslidden pilgrim, Godly Affections said. I say we just keep doing what you've been doing. We've got good soil, we've got rapid growth. How can we lose? And Godly Affections, Turnaway said, that's important. Although I, I think we should shorten the name. If anyone here needs a nickname, it's the man with five syllables. Hmm, seems like a job for me, Good Soil said. How about, uh, Fetch? No, that's terrible. Maybe Sean? Turnaway laughed. <laughs> As in godly effect Sean's? Eh, she shrugged. This may not be your gift, good lady. Turnaway laughed. How about uh, just godly? Yes, Good Soil said. Godly it is. They walked together for the remainder of the day, singing hymns as they went, reciting passages from the holy book, and speculating about the incomparable glory of the celestial city. As the sun began to set behind them, Turnaway said, We should think about a place to lay our heads, and if possible, get a bite to eat. I don't suppose you have any food with you, sir? No, Godly said. I'm afraid I had been eating the fruit spilling over the wall. I would not recommend that. And oh, how I would love a real hearty meal to satisfy my hunger. We are also out of food, Turnaway said. What little we had, we ate for lunch. Good Soil halted her steps and pulled her company back by the elbows. Do you boys smell that? Oh, I certainly do, Turnaway said, drool pooling in his lower lip. Oh, it's delicious. Oh, I, I believe it's coming from down there. He pointed at a footpath diverging from the narrow way, winding off to the left. Be careful, Godly warned. I am probably hungrier than the two of you combined, but I know firsthand the dangers of leaving the narrow way. It's nothing to be trifled with. No one's suggesting we actually leave the way. This is an exit, a little place of rest, probably put there by the king himself. I suggest we follow this path for a little ways and see what we encounter. If, if any one of us wants to turn back, we'll all turn back. Sound good? I trust you, Good Soil said. I guess I'm game, Godly said, but let's keep our heads up and our wits about us. The night is coming fast. They followed the trail around two bends and two furlongs, after which it straightened out. There, a sign announced, Apostasy, three miles ahead. Apostasy, 
Godly read. That's it. I'm done. Let's head back. Now look! Turnaway pointed to a simple building bearing the words, The Higher Standard, Food and Drink. That is the source of that heavenly smell. We've come this far. I suggest we go in. Are you mad? Good Soil said. We might find ourselves in the, in the very seat of scoffers. What have we been talking about half the day? Turnaway said. Wanting more opportunities to proclaim the word, to reach out to the lost. Isn't that our, our whole mission as we walk the narrow road? I'm not suggesting we move in. It's a meal in a public house situated more or less along the narrow road. I guess I can't argue with that, Godly said. He turned to Good Soil. What do you think? I guess I'll trust our leader here. Let's have some dinner and bless some souls. Possibly win some souls. They entered the windowless building to find the light low, mostly supplied by the roaring fire in the hearth, and the room all but filled with a single large table. At the far end, several men were huddled together, drinks in hand, embroiled in lively conversation. They took no notice of the three pilgrims as they sat and ordered roast chicken and corn pone, but when the food arrived and the pilgrims paused to return thanks, the room went suddenly silent. Upon saying amen, the pilgrims found themselves the object of scornful looks. I suppose you three blew in here from yonder religious road, said a man with a scraggly beard and fur-collared coat. We are pilgrims, if that's what you mean, Turnaway answered. And like other pilgrims, are you three dead set on converting others to your way of thinking? The man absent-mindedly spun a coin on the table as he spoke. It's not convincing others to think like us that makes a difference, Good Soil said. It's proclaiming the good news and trusting the Spirit of God to convict the sinner and draw him to the cross. I see. Then I suppose you would not be interested in hearing my objections to the Pilgrim Creed. I wouldn't want to upset your quaint little apple cart. On the contrary, Godly said, a pilgrim is always ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within. And, Turnaway added, to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion lifted up against the knowledge of God. The bearded man flattened the coin against the table with the palm of his hand and said, But what if each of us had an objection? Would you hear them all? All seven? Or would you be too busy destroying our opinions? We would hear them, Godly said, if you would hear us as well. Go ahead, speak your mind. A fat man sitting half in the dark at the corner of the table said, I will speak first. I believe your faith to be based in fear. You motivate the masses through oracles of doom, dangling your own journey as the only possible escape. But if your teachings are true, why would you need to resort to such cheap tricks? The man tipped back in his chair. You may not believe it, but I once walked that very road and believed that doing so made me bold and courageous. It was only after I left the narrow way for good that I could see the truth. Leaving was the truly bold move. I no longer walk in fear of some vengeful king who comes under the banner of love only to crush me for my failings. I am freed from such fear. So you are sure there will be no reckoning for your sins, Good Soil said. Truly, I believe you people overstate the consequences of so-called sin. In fact, much of the happiness in my life today is the direct result of what you would call sin. 
Pilgrims often speak of faith and fear as though they are opposites, but I submit to you they are only such in the sense that two sides of the same coin are opposite each other. But consider this, Godly began to say, but Turnaway motioned for him to keep silent. Let us hear all seven before we respond, he said. We may find them to be redundant, or perhaps we can answer more than one objection at once. Okay. Turnaway gestured for the next man in line to speak. I have only a question for you, the man said. A simple two-word question. Why hell? Why would a supposedly kind and loving God even conceive of such a thing, to send even some of his kindest and most loving creatures into eternal punishment? Yes, you'll say, he is loving, but he's also holy and just. But I say, how can a just king create me as I am, with lust or pride or jealousy in my heart, and then punish me for living these things out? It is such nonsense. I would expect small children to embrace these notions, but not grown men and an old woman. Okay, I'm not old. Turnaway patted Goodsoil's hand and gestured to a young, clean-cut man. Have you something to say? My objection, the man practically shouted, is that the entire enterprise of pilgrimage is built on a foolish and anti-intellectual foundation. Why, to even entertain the idea of, of miracles flies in the face of two and a half centuries worth of scientific revival. Just throw all that knowledge right out the window. No rational person believes a man can walk on water or ascend into the sky or, or be swallowed by a whale and live. And certainly no one can return to life once he's died. He inspected the three pilgrims for a moment before pointing to Turnaway and saying, you especially surprise me, sir. These others perhaps do not know any better, but you strike me as someone with the potential to be sophisticated and intellectual. That sounds awfully elitist, Godly said. You are the elitists, a bald and wizened man declared, pointing his stubby fingers at the three of them. Of all the religions, of all the people in all the world, for all of history, only your way is right. Such arrogance! Good Soil shifted in her seat, clearly wanting to give a response, but instead she swallowed it down and asked, Is that all, sir? The little man laughed. Yes, that's all. Just that your narrow view of the universe is laughable and naive. Nothing more. He threw up his hands. And let us not forget the hypocrites, a finely dressed man said, leaning dramatically into the light of a burning candle. I have spent a little time on that road of yours, and I have noticed that many a scoundrel walks it, many who prefer cruelty to love, who hold to greed and slander and gossip and even worse. There are some on that road who claim to be the very light of the world while obscuring their own wickedness and that of their friends and fellows in the shadows. If that road of yours is traveled by such wicked people, why should anyone want to walk it? I raise an even more foundational question the next man said, swilling his drink around in its tankard. Why would anyone want to walk that road when they are made to submit, to give up their autonomy, even their identity? Are you a sheep, a follower, or a leader? It seems clear to me that this religion of yours preys upon the simple-minded and weak-willed in order to benefit the few. Godly's eyes drifted down the row of barflies. By my count, we've one more grievance yet to hear, he said, but I'm not sure who. It is I, 
said the man with the scraggly beard, now flipping the coin deftly between his knuckles. And for last, I have saved the most obvious flaw. You claim that your king is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving, and that he is on the throne even now, and yet there is still suffering in this world. Unspeakable, nonsensical suffering, beyond what any man could catalog. This does not require a philosopher's mind or great learning. It was clear to me when I was but ten years old. My mother fell ill, and I prayed for her that your king would heal her. But he did not. She died. I know how that feels, Turnaway said. My mother died when I was young. It never truly leaves you, does it? Did you not pray for her? Well, it was an accident, not an illness. An accident beyond your king's ability to prevent? No, but your mother, was she a pilgrim? Like you? No, she did not walk that road, but she was a good woman, a kind and, and wonderful woman. I miss her greatly. A good woman, you say? Not good enough for your king. By your doctrine, he has tossed her aside into burning brimstone simply because she did not walk his narrow way, in his particular narrow way. Perhaps she followed her own heart, her own path. Could he not love her and reward her simply for that? Godly affections planted his hands on the table and half stood. How can you speak this way? The king of princes died for us, suffered and died for our filth and sins and rebellion so that we could have a, a way of deliverance, one way to escape eternal death and, and have eternal life. And instead of praising him with all your being, you complain that he should have died a dozen other deaths so that you could have some choice in how you are saved? That's not what he's saying, and I think you know it, Turnaway snapped. Then he recomposed himself and said, Sorry, I just, I understand this man's frustration, and I think we have all shared it. Why must the narrow way be so narrow? We all keep these doubts hidden deep in our hearts, but they must come forth at some point. The question must be answered, who is this king to use us as playthings in his game of cosmic chess? Turn away, Good Soil said. What are you doing over there? He looked down and saw that he was now sitting on the opposite side of the table, in the midst of the seven. Across from him, the two pilgrims gaped at how quickly this reversal had taken place. Turn away, do not rush into anything, Godly said. To doubt is not sin, but your doubts are not your friends, either. As the poet said, our doubts are traitors. And how do we treat traitors? Give them a fair trial, yes, but then put them to death. But the seven were now plying Turnaway with strong drink and whispering dissension in his ears. Good Soil reached for his hand, but the table was too big. Turnaway, think of the place of deliverance. Think of the new name you received. Yes, Godly said, and think of the empty sepulcher and, and the hill where your burden was taken from you. Think of the cross we saw there. In fact, as I think back to it now, I saw the prince himself dying there, suffering for my sins. Did you see it? Listen to how their memories shift to ward off reason and doubt, one of the men said, again filling Turnaway's cup. You were there, Turnaway, Godly said. Think back. No, I wasn't. He shook his head slowly. 
My name has always been Turnaway, and I'm met up with the Pilgrim Road east of the hill, taking an old path directly from my hometown. There was a man there, one evangelist, who laid hands on me and, and tried to guide me to a gate some miles back, but I was unwilling to start at the beginning. I've always been a, a quick study, after all. He locked eyes with good soil. And, and then I met you, good woman, and you spoke so transcendently of that holy hill, the transport of the place and the freedom you received, that I just went along with it. Your coat, Godly began to say, but in this light they could see that it was a counterfeit, and the sweat trickling down his brow was cutting through the mark on his forehead. Oh, Chernaway, I know what it's like to be tempted by our old sins, our old self. Don't bother. There's nothing you can say that I don't already know. If anyone ever really knew this king, I did. I prophesied powerfully in his name and, and did many great wonders for his glory, and yet... I feel nothing but relief to quit that narrow road. Leave me now, my friends. I will never walk that path again. We can still go back, Good Soil said. Come with us. We'll, we'll accompany you back to the wicket gate. But the seven had closed in around Turnaway so that they could no longer see him. Where was his hometown? Godly asked. He never said, but I think I know. The town apostasy. He comes from that place, and now he will willingly go back. You should forget that you ever knew this turn away, said the bearded man. He was never one of yours to begin with, and he never belonged to your king. He's right, said Good Soil. He's right, but, but were we wrong to come in here? Godly said. Was Turnaway misleading us when he said that our mission along the road is to, to reason with the lost and to point them to the gates and the, the place of deliverance? No, he was right. And we will encounter many more on the road, some of whom may say the very same things we've heard here tonight, only earnestly, seeking truth, not by way of dragging a pilgrim into the pit of hell. These seven are not men seeking God. They are dogs and swine, and our Lord has forbidden us giving holy things to them, lest they trample them underfoot, turn, and tear us to pieces. We should go. Or maybe we'll keep you here with us, the leader of the seven said, leaping upon the table and scrambling over it impossibly fast on hands and knees. But as he wrapped his hand around Good Soil's wrist, it sizzled and burned, and he let out a hoarse shriek. By reflex, she pushed him away. The simple blow sent him sailing across the room, where he slammed into the wall and crumpled to the ground. The two pilgrims stood and made their way out into the night, looking back, sadly, for their friend, but not seeing him. When they'd gone, the seven dispersed, returning to their seats. They kept filling Turnaway's cup with strong drink and his ears with the seeds of unbelief and the dung to fertilize them well into the night. Oh, I'm, so, I'm so glad I found you guys, Turnaway slurred, looking around at his table mates. Whoa, I think I've, I think I've had too much. You're, uh, you're changing. And they were. Their faces were transforming, some into canine form, brows pulled low, the sharp gaze of a predator. The others took on the visage of wild boars. Turnaway looked down into his cup and chuckled. Dogs and swine, that's, that's too much. Oh, don't worry, 
the leader said, his tusks emerging from the bedraggled beard. You're just overwarm from the fire. Let's take this off. He helped Turnaway remove the coat, which he tossed into the fire. Then, from the flames, he withdrew a brand, the end glowing red. All at once, Turnaway's drinking companions converged on him, savagely pinning him to the table, pulling his shirt up to expose his bare back. Since that mark has melted from your head, the bearded swine said, let's give you something more permanent. A Clergy Meeting in Fair Speech The five parsons sat around a long wooden table at the front of the Pleasant Chapel in the town of Fair Speech. They had all traveled a fair distance to be here, save for the Reverend Two-Tongues, whose church it was. I believe we are all present and accounted for, Mr. Two-Tongues, said the Reverend Smoothman, albeit hungry and parched. He rolled his eyes. When I've hosted this group, I've always been sure to provide some fine food and drink for my fellows. Mr. Two-Tongues snuffed. You are wrong on the first account, sir, and therefore your annoyance is misplaced. We will be joined by a sixth man today, a first-timer, and this being his first visit with us, I asked him to bring the refreshments. The Reverend Whitewash tipped back in his chair and asked, Who is this mysterious cleric? Anyone we know? Just then, the door opened, and in walked a simple man wearing simple clothing, holding a platter of treacle tarts in one hand and lugging a large jug in the other. My friends, the host said, standing at the head of the table, allow me to introduce the Reverend Mr. Unswerving, parson of the Church of the Cross, a rural congregation in the county of Fidelity. They all greeted him and greedily eyed the platter. Have a seat, young man, Two-Tongues said and uh, I'll take those from you. When he'd settled in, Mr. Unswerving gestured to Mr. Smoothman and said, I believe we've met once or twice. You're the parson of the first church in destruction, are you not? That I am. It's good to see you again. And of course, I crossed paths with the Reverend Mr. Two-Tongues a fortnight ago while traveling the narrow way to visit an elderly parishioner, which is how I learned of your wonderful fellowship. And again, sir, thank you for inviting me. Ministry can be lonely work, and I am most encouraged at the prospect of this, this brotherhood, and so I look forward to meeting the rest of you. I am the Reverend Mr. License of the United Church of Ease in Vainglory. Pleased to meet you. I'm Mr. Whitewash of the First Church of Morality near Carnal Policy, the lovely church upon the perch where we pray and sing and do the right thing. That's quite the slogan. We, we workshopped it. And you, sir? I'm the Most Reverend Mr. Liberty of Affirmation Chapel in the town of Vanity, home of the, the famous Vanity Fair. That must be quite the mission field. Well, I am pleased to make your acquaintance, gentlemen, and I truly hope it grows beyond mere acquaintance into true friendship. And please, enjoy the tarts. My wife made them, and she sends her greetings and her prayers for your congregations. Mr. Two-Tongues opened the jug and peered down into it, sniffing disagreeably. What is... Oh, I know you said to bring wine, but it seemed a bit early in the day for such an indulgence, so I brought milk instead. Besides, there's nothing better than a cup of milk with a sweet treat, am I right? They all agreed, by way of disappointed grunts. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Before we begin, Mr. Two-Tongues said, I move that we formally welcome our new friend into the group, despite this feeble beverage. All in favor? Aye. There was a chorus of eyes, and Two-Tongues announced... 
Well, it's unanimous. Mr. Smoothman took a bite of a tart and said, Tell me, Mr. Unswerving, uh, how many are there in your congregation? Hmm. On, on a good Lord's Day, we gather together about thirty saints, and I visit a dozen or so in their homes. It is a rural church, after all. Mr. License choked. Thirty? Is that all? How do they even pay you? Sacrificially. They're very faithful, and, and we lack for nothing, and the Lord has been kind. My fields have been quite fertile, and with very little work we're able to supplement our own larder and cellar with enough left over to help the needy around us. Of course, we live in a, a humble parsonage built by strong, skilled men of the church, long since gone to the city, which stands solid to this day, having been built upon the rock, as the king of princes taught us. <laughs> yeah, said Mr. Whitewash, but what about the perks, the benefits? With no local tavern in a rural community, you have nowhere to drink for free. With no courthouse or magistrates, there's no schedule of fees and the like to pad your purse. Why, half the reason I got into the ministry was the perks, not to mention the seats of honor and many invitations I receive on account of my office. Oh, I don't know about that, said Mr. Two-Tongues. There are indeed certain frills for the clergy, as there should be, but I more appreciate the camaraderie, the fellowship with my fellow man. You may wonder, Mr. Unswerving, why this table is here where the pews would normally be. It is because I gather together with good men almost every night of the week, breaking bread, having fellowship, and the like. I enjoy both, said Mr. License. In vainglory there are perks aplenty and fellowship. I am welcomed in every home without question and often fed fine food, and I continually find myself the recipient of gifts both physical and intangible. Those long nights of conversation, drinking, gaming, and amusement. But you know who truly has it all, Mr. Liberty here. He is not only given preferential treatment, but is the most trusted advisor to their judge, Lord Hategood, and he sits on the town council to boot. How many terms has it been, Liberty? Oh, I've lost count, Mr. Liberty said. Unswerving looked down the line of clergymen and addressed Mr. Smoothman. It can't be like that in a town like destruction, he said. I understand the hostility toward the gospel message and the church itself is at a fever pitch there. In fact, my people pray for you and your congregation weekly. Mr. Smoothman shrugged. It hasn't been so bad. The citizens of destruction may believe what they want privately, but very few are willing to oppose a man of the cloth in public. He gazed out the window in thought for a moment and added, Lately, though, it has been a bit more of a struggle. Ever since that horrid day some time ago when the crowds filled the streets and the people began to weep and wail, rant and rage about the coming of fiery destruction upon our fair city. Foolish myths, of course. But naturally, there were religious charlatans waiting in the wings to pile fuel on the fire, and that has been a bit of a trial for me all around. Mr. License agreed. Yes, we have a bit of that in our neck of the woods, too. And I hear the disquiet has even reached the town of Vanity. You have heard correctly, Mr. Liberty said. There was recently a bit of unrest in our lovely fair. Two pilgrims, he spat the word as if it tasted bitter on his tongue, were threatening the peace. One of them was found guilty and put to death, while the other slipped away under the cover of darkness. And ever since he left, there has been a small but growing upheaval in our midst, disquieting the minds and spirits of our people, and I feel it will get worse before it gets better. They all nodded solemnly. Mr. Whitewash took a contemplative bite and mused, We've seen this before. 
It'll pass. I don't understand, Mr. Unswerving said. People fear the coming of judgment and are looking for the way of escape, of deliverance. This all sounds to me like the makings of revival, a blessing, like, like many men and women are primed to receive the good news of salvation. Mr. Smoothman looked down his long nose and said, Perhaps we're not describing it adequately. Many who were otherwise occupied with their vocations and the distractions and diversions of this life are now asking troubling questions, making frightening proclamations. And, worst of all, they seem to think that we, the clergy, ought to be at the center of all this, affirming their delusions and, and offering some sort of remedy. Mr. Two-Tongues wrapped his knuckles against the table. And let's not forget, I've got four men of my congregation on pilgrimage right now, and two left from vainglory not a month ago. It's not as if we are against religious pursuits. Mr. Unswerving looked around at these ministers, confused. But the gospel is the message of salvation from the wrath to come. That is our calling as ministers. How can this spreading disquiet, as you call it, be seen as anything but an opportunity for gospel ministry, a wide-open door given by God himself? Mr. License looked sternly upon the newcomer and said, I've got better things to do than entertain the hysterical ramblings of religious quacks. Agreed, Mr. Whitewash said. The whole thing is crackers. The best we can do, the best response on our part, would be to gently correct those who are dabbling in such things and sternly rebuke the ringleaders. That is easier said than done, said Mr. Smoothman. I'm sure you've all heard of this man Christian, the author of the recent chaos. Well, he originated in my congregation, I'm not so proud to say, and he was not at all the kind of man you'd think. He was a wallflower, barely made a peep in the service, filled his pew each and every Sunday. Never once was he fined for missing the service. He'd shake my hand on the way out of the meeting house with an absent-minded, wonderful sermon, parson, never bothered me during the week, never asked a single vexing question, until the day someone infected him with these dangerous ideas, like a fever passed from one man to the next, and from that day on, rebuke as I might, I could do nothing to shake him of his delusions or stop the spread of the contagion. Christian, Mr. Liberty said, that's the man who escaped from our prison. He's trouble, said Mr. Smoothman. Troubled, I think. Mr. Unswerving threw his hands in the air and shouted, What is it that you men teach? What do you proclaim if not that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, our only hope resting in Christ himself, in his death and resurrection on our behalf? Do you not warn your people of the wrath that is surely coming upon the earth? They all gaped at him in pure shock, as if he had transformed into a bullfrog and was now hopping up and down, croaking in his chair. Finally, Mr. Two-Tongues shook his head sadly and said, Oh, no, not you too, Mr. Unswerving. You men set out to ease the itching ears of your people so that you might reap some meager temporal rewards, the puny perks of this world, but in so doing, you are passing up eternal rewards and storing up for yourselves wrath against the day of wrath. Mr. License pushed another pastry into his mouth and spoke through the massive bite. I move that we expel Mr. Unswerving from the group post-haste. The words emerged in a cloud of powdered sugar. Second said Mr. Smoothman. All in favor? called Mr. Two-Tongues. Aye. Another chorus of eyes. Opposed? He paused a moment and said, Are you abstaining, Mr. Liberty? The parson shrugged. Well, it mid-matters not. The eyes have it and the expulsion carries.
Mr. Two-Tongues dragged the simple clay dish, still half full of tarts, to himself. We will keep the rest of your treats as your dues paid in full, but you, sir, must leave these premises at once, and take your milk with you. Mr. Unswerving hoisted the jug, said goodbye, and made his way out into the churchyard. He was only a dozen steps from the door when a man came rushing out after him. Ah, Mr. Liberty, I thought you might join me. You did? Why? You tell me. The most reverend Mr. Liberty bit his lip in thought for a moment, and when he opened his mouth, the words came pouring out. I, too, have been feeling the sense of unease in my spirit ever since watching that pilgrim faithful perish in the flames. I could have sworn I saw him walk out of that fire, away from his body, and climb aboard a fiery chariot like that of the prophet in the holy book. I have had no peace of mind since then. I haven't been able to sleep, and that question continually echoes through my mind. Mr. Unswerving nodded. What must I do to be saved? Yes, and I, I have no answer. Even as more and more of my parishioners pose the same question week after week, and the growing weight of all this seems to have somehow manifest itself on my person. Mr. Unswerving reached out and rested his hand on the man's burden, which had grown larger even since the meeting had begun. I saw this the moment I laid eyes on you, sir. Tell me, Mr. Liberty, would you like to know how to be relieved of it? Where you can receive true liberty? More than anything. Then come with me. I'll walk with you, all the way to the wicket gate. Thanks for listening. To support this program and for additional content and perks, visit patreon.com slash pilgrimsprogress and or take two minutes to leave an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. The Pilgrim's Progress, From This World to That Which Is to Come, adapted by Zachary Bartles from John Bunyan's Classic Manuscript. This text, copyright 2023, Zachary Bartles. This recording, copyright 2023, High and Silver, All Rights Reserved. Produced by Brad Atchison and Zachary Bartles. Additional voice talent this week by Josh Loftus. Additional sound effects and music licensed from Pond5.com and Audio Micro. For more engaging audio fiction, visit www.zacharybartles.com slash audio. Hi, and Silva. Got to get